Good morning, everyone. It's uh, 8.04 Apple time, time to begin. If you can please take your seats, silence your beepers, phones, and all of, you, all of those of you in the, uh, uh, on the web, uh, in the cloud, uh, welcome to our grand rounds. Uh, this will be uh, uh, full of images and, and ultrasounds, is what I, what I understand, and, uh, and Henry will, will uh, uh, give the grand rounds, and John uh, Brancato will, will introduce him briefly. Uh, just a couple of things. One is that, uh, as you know, we have a rewards and recognition program for, uh, for uh, the individuals who actually are here in real time and live. Um, and, and we created this a few year, couple of years ago, looking at just to try to encourage people to come to Grand Rounds because it's not only learning, but also meeting with people, shaking hands um, after you watch them from your coronavirus, of course, yeah. uh, and, and, uh, and interacting with, with us. And that's something that is very important as part of engagement. And the, the winner for, the, uh, uh, for this quarter, uh, it's what we call this the Mach 10 Proposal Reward and Recognition Program, is somebody who actually attended 100% of the second 10 pediatric grand rounds and meeting 100% of the Mach 2 eligibility requirements, which means you filled out your form and you did really well. The other thing I learned today, and, and you know, I'm, I'm a little bit technology not savvy, and, um, and I was shown how to uh, actually take a picture of the, uh, you don't even take a picture, you, you point your camera to the little, whatever they call those little widgets, uh, and, um, and then immediately uh, it brings you to the website and you can log in and then you avoid having to fill this out on paper. So um, I, I did it with a lot of coaching. Dr. Ratson did it on her own. So I'm, I'm very proud. So Susan, congratulations to you for being so good. Uh, now, the, the Mach 10 proposal uh, winner this time is, uh, again, I want to recognize 100%. So Dr. Demirci, if you can come up and we'll give you your gift. And congratulations to you. There's a gift for ten thousand dollars and something like so. And thank you very much for participating. Very good. All right. Uh, so the the Dr. Brancato, John Brancato, who all of you know, will be introducing uh, Henry Chikaiza, uh, one of our uh, uh, junior faculty who's up and coming. And and I, I do want to take two seconds to recognize John for everything that he does. Uh, he does it with kindness. Uh, he does it with determination incredibly highly professional in so many ways and and somebody who who really wears the Connecticut children's shirt is what I call it and and also uh, an incredible member of the Department of Pediatrics uh, John has been uh, here almost as long as I have uh, and and uh, you know we've seen uh, uh, our kids grow together and uh, I always get a kick when you know his daughter is now driving and, and I see John with his hair standing for you know and, and trying to so we, we share some of these some of these stories and uh, so so John thank you for all that you do for the hospital for the emergency department and and our academic enterprise I just want to make sure that I recognize if you can just give John a round of applause for everything that he does John if you can come up Good morning. Um, I'm very pleased to introduce uh, one of my colleagues, um, Dr. Henry Chikaiza, um, who uh, many of you know he's been here actually uh, longer than um, we sometimes think it's gone very quickly. Um, Henry did his undergraduate work at Hamilton College in central New York, um, got his uh, doctor of medicine from New Jersey Medical School and joined us after the completion of his residency in pediatrics at Bay State Medical Center. 
He did his um, fellowship in pediatric emergency medicine here at Connecticut Children's. Um, and although we lost him for a year to Stony Brook um, on Long Island, uh, we were very uh, happy to get him back in 2015. So he's um, finishing his fifth year back with us as an attending. Um, Henry has almost single-handedly um, developed our point-of-care ultrasound program. And um, it's hard to overstate the importance of it, um, both uh, for our function in the ED and now increasingly in other parts of the hospital. Um, Henry has developed all kinds of uh, pieces of this program from ongoing educational sessions and skill sessions, um, hands-on skill sessions to a billing process um, and image quality review. He teaches uh, pediatric emergency medicine and point-of-care ultrasound to uh, pediatric residents, emergency medicine residents, um, and our six pediatric emergency medicine fellows, and is a favorite of all of them. Um, there's nobody better to speak on point-of-care ultrasound, so please welcome Dr. Chikaisa. Uh, good morning. So uh, I want to thank um, just, uh, John for allowing me to speak on something I've been passionate since um, I was a fellow. So, um, so today we're going to discuss about a uh, point of care ultrasound. My objectives, other than because there's going to be the lightning is going to be a little lower, is to keep you guys awake. And then during that time, I'm going to be going to learn how to define what is exactly point of care ultrasound. Um, learn the common pediatric applications of POCUS and the implementation of a POCUS program in our institution. So like all ultrasound um, lectures that I had the pleasure to uh, attend, we always start with a good clinical case to sort of uh, showcase uh, the power of uh, POCUS. So our first clinical case that I'm going to present today is a 16-year-old female who was transferred from our institution for um, um, appendicitis. This was uh, diagnosis was made uh, via ultrasound at the outside institution, where she gave a history of chest pain and abdominal pain. This was associated with nausea and vomiting, um, and no fevers were reported by the patient. Upon further review of the patient's chart from the outside hospital, um, it was noted that she has been about she will ha she had been evaluated for the chest pain on a prior visit about one week before uh, she presented. That time, her chest pain was not associated with any shortness of breath or any syncope. She did give a history of intermittent palpitations um, at that time. And per their documentation, um, which I'm assuming involved an EKG, everything looked normal, and she was being treated as reflux. Once she was transferred to our institution, um, her vital signs were overall stable, a temperature of 97.2 a heart rate of 96, a respiratory rate of 20, and a blood pressure of 109 over 75. Overall, she appeared uncomfortable, she was in pain. On long examination, there were clear auscultation, no wheezing or crackles were noted. Cardiovascular exam revealed normal S1 and S2, and no murmurs were heard. Her abdominal exam showed diffuse tenderness, but also more uh, localized to the right lower quadrant. So the workup at Connecticut Journals included a repeat right lower quadrant ultrasound uh, with the purpose of one, to confirm the diagnosis at the outside institution, and two, to possibly determine if maybe they were dealing with a ruptured appendix. Much to the surprise of the providers here, it was noted that the patient had a normal appendix. However, there was a large amount of free fluid in the abdomen and pelvis, 
and uh, clinical correlation was uh, um, was uh, S and, and consider an abdominal CT. Consequently, the abdominal CT with contrast was performed, which once again showed the free fluid in the abdomen and a small right pleural effusion. Appendix was normal and everything else in the intra-abdominal area were normal. Along all of this was happening, an EKG was obtained in order to evaluate for the chest pain that was reported a couple of weeks. So here in this um, EKG, we see diffuse low voltages, frequent PVCs, and diffuse SC changes. So now our focus is now shift to cardiac pathology. So we went from appendicitis confirmed by ultrasound to all the way to cardiac pathology, considering myocarditis, pericarditis, possibly uh, resulting in um, heart failure or pericardial infusion. So this is where focus becomes important and where focus rises. So the first thing that I'm worried about when I'm evaluating this patient, so this is what the ultrasound I did, this was about two in the morning, is I want to make sure the patient doesn't have a pericardial effusion now that I know that I'm concerned for myocarditis or pericarditis. In this patient, um, we, she did not have a pericardial effusion. And what we see here, in order to do this, we put an ultrasound probe on the side foot area, and that gives us the view of the heart right underneath the liver that's located here. If you see a fusion, it's gonna be located between the liver and the heart. Just like in your far right, you see there's a fusion there. Fortunately for this patient, she did not uh, have any pericardial fusion. So the next thing I want to know is what's her overall heart function? So this is what we can attain by doing what we call a parasternal short. Uh, where we place the ultrasound probe between the second and third intercostal, and we're able to view this uh, view. In this view, we're able to see the left ventricle and also the right ventricle. And um, only if you have some awareness of uh, cardiac ultrasounds, um, you'll notice that this is probably a very abnormal. So if there's any cardiologists in the thing, they're probably squinting their eyes right now. So what is normal? So on your left side, you're going to see what we call good squeeze. In ultrasound, we only, and um, POCUS, we only uh, evaluate the heart as moderate, good squeeze, or poor squeeze. The one on your left side is going to be a good squeeze, where all the walls are squeezing, just a synchronized version. And if you can imagine, the black area between the left ventricle, more than 50% is, uh, goes away with contraction. In comparison to the patient, which is located on your right side, where you can see that the walls are barely in, uh, synchronized and there she's barely squeezing. So what does that tell us? Essentially, the patient was in heart failure. And in case you guys were wondering, well, maybe she could have been determined because of uh, vital signs where she had no business having the vital signs she had. So the patient arrived to our institution around 9, in the 9 p.m. And you notice she was barely tachycardic and her blood pressures were overall normal. Um, this ultrasound was performed around 2 in the morning, where her blood pressure is, was starting to trend down maybe 92 over 71. Uh, but her main complaint at that time was just abdominal pain and chest pain. So her final diagnosis was myocarditis. Uh, I was uh, fortunate enough to have uh, woke up my cardiologist at 4 in the morning, and she believed what I saw. Uh, it's actually Dr. Olga Salazar, who came right in at 4 in the morning and confirmed... Yep, <laughs> and confirmed uh, my POCUS findings uh, with a poor LB function. It was found out to be 20%. Uh, 
Uh, she confirmed a no effusion, and the patient was quickly admitted to the PICU with pressors. And in case we want to know how this patient did, so she had an excellent recovery over a year, and her cardiac function was back to normal after about a year. So what is POCUS? So as this uh, case highlights, POCUS is a focused ultrasonography performed and interpreted at the patient's bedside by the health provider in conjunction with his or her, uh, his or her clinical examination. What does POCUS offer us? Well, the literature shows that it's expedites clinical decision-making, just as you saw in this case. It uh, provides direct follow-up diagnostic imaging. It also pro provides procedural guidance and improves patient satisfaction. Other advantages that we see from POCUS is that there's no need to transport the patient to outside the ED, which in hospitals, it could be a, a, long, um, long, um, a long ways. And examinations can be done at all hours, which is especially important in institutions like ours, where we don't have 24 hours of ultrasound. And exams can be repeated every time. So no matter what, if anything changes with the patient, you can once again repeat it. As again, in this patient, I could easily repeat the cardiac ultrasound to determine if things were getting even worse. And of course, there's no radiation exposure to in, in the patients. It also helps direct further evaluation and avoid unnecessary uh, testing. So a little history behind POCUS. So actually, a medical ultrasound ivory started around 1940s. But as the uh, technology got better and the quality image got better, everything became more mobile. And it became an excellent tool to go into the emergency department. And by 1990, the American College of Emergency Physicians published the first position statement stating that pediatric, uh, that ER doctors who are appropriately trained should do point of care point of, uh, ultrasound. In 1994, the first training curriculum was published. 1996, POCUS actually became core content for ER residencies. And in 2001, the ACGME mandated competency and POCUS, and the ACEP publishes training guidelines. There were a couple of updates by the American College of Emergency Physicians in 2008 and 2015. Once again, this is for adult ED programs. PEM, we lagged, uh, lagged behind a little bit in the, in the field of POCUS. In 2006, about half of uh, POCUS programs with a fellowship reported use of it. About 65% incorporated training for fellows. By 2001, there was a significant increase where 95% reported uh, use of POCUS in some matter. And 88% of institutions incorporated training for fellows. By 2015, the AAP released a joint statement uh, regarding and supporting the use of POCUS by pediatric emergency doctors. And with its increased use, its importance has rise and research continues to go. So this is a rising field where there's a lot of chance for opportunity for research. So indications for POCUS, you can either break them down to procedural or diagnostic. Diagnostic, just as I used it in our previous case where I was able to diagnose um, poor ca uh, cardiac function and heart failure. And procedural, in case you wanted a, if your patient had a pericardial effusion, drain that by either doing dynamic and static. Dynamic meaning that you're simultaneously using the ultrasound as you're doing the procedure, and static meaning that you actually just, um, uh, you would just mark the area where you go, just as a case that I will show you with lumbar punctures. And uh, late, uh, like in October of 2019, actually the first core content was uh, released 
for POCUS in pediatric emergency medicine. What you see in the middle is the POCUS applications that are, that are assumed to be mastered by Penn Fellowship. And there are about 21, um, uh, 21 applications that our fellows need to be comfortable with. And then there's the ultrasound fellowship applications, which adds another like 15. So in order to uh, go over the pediatric applications for POCUS, we first have to start with sort of what started everything. So it's a focus assessment with sonography in trauma patients. So this was evaluates for free fluid in the, around the heart and in three areas of the dominant pelvic cavity, the right upper quadrant, left upper quadrant, and pelvic area. It is, start, is a standard adjunct in trauma evaluation in adult population, and it replaced diagnostic peritoneal lavage. It is well established in the adult population with those who present with a blunt abdominal trauma. Its sensitivity to detect uh, free fluid is anywhere between 85 to 96% and 100% if the patient is hypotensive. There is a little debate in the pediatric uh, population about whether using FAST, especially in the hemodynamically stable patient. As there's been some literature that states that it's uh, its effectiveness is it could be a little in question if the patient is hemodynamically stable as it doesn't improve their clinical care. But that's not seen in patients with hypotensive care, with hypotension, where the sensitivity is close to 100% just as seen in adults. As we get more comfortable and more training is involved, this, uh, the FAST will become even more important as I think more and more patients will benefit from it. And with that, uh, <clears throat> leads me to another case where we have a 10-year-old who presented to our emergency department after an NBC. Patient was an appropriate rear seated belt passenger. The vehicle was struck from the side while traveling around 50 degrees or 50 miles per hour and the airbags deployed. The patient was ambulating prior to EMS arrival, reported no loss of consciousness and presented to our emergency department. In our emergency department, the patient overall had stable vital signs and just reported some mild lower quadrant tenderness. The initial, initial FAST exam was negative. However, throughout the emergency department stay, the patient's uh, pain worsened and became more tachycardic, and the FAST was repeated right at the bedside. So on your left side, you see the first FAST exam where we see the bladder on your right and the abdominal cavity. Now, if there was any free fluid, it would be between the uh, bladder and abdominal cavity. So the first FAS exam was negative. As the patient's pain worsened and became more tachycardic, now you start seeing this faint black area, which uh, hypoechoic, which signifies free fluid in the abdomen. Now this sometimes can be hard to salvage if you are not a practice, but I can show you one that is a little more obvious. So what this was able to accomplish for this patient it was able to immediately get him a CT, which show a wall thickening of the terminal ileum and ascending column with a small amount of adjacent free fluid. The patient was then taken to the OR where terminal ileum perforation was noted. Once again, this shows that POCUS can not only be repeated at any point and it can offer, um, it basically decreases your, like, uh, your, um, decreases your threshold for further, uh, for further imaging just as CT. Another common application is the one we just went over in our first case, which is a cardiac ultrasound. So what the literature shows is that 
It's <clears throat> cardiac ultrasound, um, gives us time-sensitive information, and it allows us to determine whether there's pericardial effusion, it allows us to determine global cardiac function, and the relative chamber size in symptomatic patients. The literature, there was a, a nice article that was published by our, um, our friends at Yale, where there was a protocol actually placed for all pen doctors that were appropriately trained in uh, cardiac ultrasound. And what they found there was that with goal-directed uh, training, PEM doctors could actually diagnose pericardial fusion uh, and systolic dysfunction. After the, the implementation of this protocol, the sensitivity and specificity were 100% and 99% for effusion. And for cardiac function, it was 100% and 99%. Chamber size, the sensitivity was 195%, showing that with appropriate training, all PEM doctors can appropriately uh, use cardiac ultrasound. Another rising application that's gaining a lot of track field is the use of uh, ultrasound for the diagnosis of pneumonia. Pneumonia, as you know, is the leading cause of illness and death in children. Signs and symptoms can vary depending on the patient's child's and age and ideology of the, of the patient. The AAP recommends us, recommends us to use chest radiographs cautiously and one reason is to um, avoid radiation and sometimes the false uh, negatives that we get from chest x-rays. Focus for the diagnosis of pneumonia has shown a sensitivity of 96% and specificity of 93%. It is quite good at obtaining very small uh, pneumonias that are less than 1%, about one centimeter, and that's what's been shown in the literature. So what do we see in those cases? So what we see here is uh, on the left side, you see the lung, and then you're surrounded by an effusion. And this is right near the diaphragm. Another finding that you can see is what we call bronchograms. And just so that way you guys can have something to compare to, uh, um, the image all the way to your far right is sort of what a normal um, uh, lung ultrasound would look like. Air is gonna be black in ultrasound, so basically after you see the shadows of the uh, ribs, basically there's nothing underneath. The presence of pneumonia changes all of this and makes the makes a structure more anechoic, meaning they become more gray and you actually start seeing some uh, anatomy. Moving on to another uh, common pediatric application is uh, soft tissue musculoskeletal. So, and this goes into uh, more of the abscess. So ambulatory and ED visits for skin soft tissue infections have been rising over the last two decades. More than 14 million counters are reported annually. And uh, there's been an increase on skin soft tissue infections related to outpatient visits, incision and drainage rate, and hospitalization rate. Now, distinguishing between abscess and scleritis can sometimes be hard. Sometimes it's pretty easy to determine whether a patient has fluxions or not. But we know the literature shows that clinical assessment alone has a high uh, rate of inaccuracy, sometimes reporting between 60 and 70 percent. Now, POCUS helps us switch that so that way we can assess the increased sensitivity and specificity that goes into the 90s for both. It's been shown to decrease length of stay and also changes management. Those ones where it's not obvious and there's a question whether there's uh, some fluid underneath. Which leads us to another case. So we have a four-year-old with no significant past medical history who presented with swelling in the left buttocks for four days. 
the area was getting progressively bigger. There was a uh, patient became febrile and no discharge was uh, reported. On exam, patient was non-toxic and it had a five by five area of induration. And uh, there was a question of fluxions on exam. And this is where POCUS can basically uh, becomes crucial. So on this image on your left, you see what we call an abscess and it's uh, the sort of what we uh, uh, call swirl. Essentially, it's just kind of the pus moving with compression of the probe. And on your far right, you see sort of what a normal uh, skin can look like with the epidermis and everything's um, very well aligned. And then you see how with the presence of the abscess, everything becomes just a little more brighter. And this leads sort of to um, us to be able to determine whether the patient would need further management just as incision and drainage. And this is something that's going to become more and more useful as technology continues to uh, be better. And now ultrasound can be even more portable where there's handheld devices. So this can be used in, uh, in outpatient uh, clinics, especially now with the rise of urgent cares. Uh, I can foresee the use of this becoming more and more. Moving on to uh, procedural uh, uses of ultrasound. The first case we're present is sort of the ultrasound-assisted lumbar punctures. The lumbar punctures, as you know, is very common in emergency department. But however, success rates can be as low as 50 to 6%. I can gladly tell you that is not our success rate in our emergency department. Ours is in the 90s. Um, and there's a rate about 35% of rate of traumatic and unsuccessful LPs. Now, with the aid of ultrasound in order to get helps us with this, um, there's a higher success rate, 90 versus 81.4%, fewer uh, traumatic attempts, and shorter time to successful LPs. There's been fewer needle uh, passes and obviously uh, lower pain scores, which is very important in the population. So how does this look in ultrasound? So it actually uh, gives us a pretty good anatomy of the view where we actually prove uh, the probe directly on the patient's back. On the left side, you have longitudinal view of the spine where you see the spinous process. On the right side, you see sort of the short axis view of this. And as you're able to tell on your right side, you can actually look at the nerves and determine at what level actually the nerves are present so you can need to avoid. And with those sort of, the other thing that's very helpful, it allows you to gauge the distance that your actual needle uh, needs to go in. This becomes especially crucial in the uh, teenage population, especially those who are obese. This is very helpful to know whether what kind of needle you need to go in and how deep you need to uh, sort of anticipate going before obtaining an LP. As I uh, showed you before, you can actually mark the area where you see that the nerves end and sort of mark where the next in terms of where you're going. And uh, this basically this has been shown as um, I showed you in previous images to actually improve success and make things a lot easier. Another application is sort of ultrasound-guided intravenous access. So as you know, <clears throat> if you can't get an IV, basically it will delay access to diagnostic and treatment. Uh, failure to task can lead to invasive procedures such, such as a central line and IO. Ultrasound, it's uh, been shown to help greatly in this as it improves first attempt success, 85 versus 45% and increases the line longevity as sometimes we use longer catheters in order to achieve uh, success. There's been no difference in complications and there's increased parent satisfaction. A lot of uh, children's hospital incorporate this into this, into their um, 
protocols in the emergency department. And this is where you view on your ultrasound, where basically the black circle represents the vein. And that uh, high, uh, little very white spot is your needle. And you can actually thread it all the way down into the center of the vein. As you can imagine, this makes things a lot simpler for patients who are known to have difficult access. And it makes things, parents very happy in order that their child can only get stuck once or twice rather than sometimes five to six times. <clears throat> so what are sort of the future applications of uh, POCUS? So we have a patient presented, 14-year-old female with headaches, and uh, with history of headaches, we presented with another headache. Similar to previous pain, uh, pre previous headaches, but she reported to be worse today. It was associated with nausea and vomiting and denied any blurry vision or photophobia. Physical exam was unremarkable. Unfortunately, it was not cooperative with the fundoscopic exam, so that was the only thing that was deferred at the time. While she was in the emergency department, she was given a migraine cocktail, and patient actually felt much improved after that. One of our uh, excellent fellows, since a fundoscopic scan was not able to be done, conducted an ocular ultrasound, which literally involves just placing the ultrasound over your eye. And what we see here is papillary edema and enlarged optic nerve sheath diameter. So that raised red flags. <clears throat> so even though the patient was overall better, <clears throat> a CT was ordered. And during that CT, we were able to see a brain mass. So once again, it showed how basically POCUS uh, was able to expedite care and actually, in this case, uh, expedite the diagnosis in this patient. The patient was immediately uh, sent to the PICU and uh, the mass was actually able to be removed, most of it, and the patient is doing well. <clears throat> Another case is a 12-year-old who presented to us with one month of persistent blurry vision to the left eye. The optometrist uh, who saw her earlier that day noted bilateral papal edema and sent her to the emergency department for further workup. Um, she also reported some mild intermittent headaches that did not cause emesis or night awakenings. There was no eye pain or photophobia and no trauma. On her physical exam, other than the papal edema, it was completely unremarkable. Her neuro exam was normal. So once again, CT was done, but in this case, it was negative. Neurology was consulted who recommended a lumbar puncture and ophthalmology was also um, consulted and they defer LP and until more author evaluation could be done. So once again, this is another place where the ocular ultrasound was very helpful to do. So what you see on your far right is going to be your normal um, eye ocular sound. Where inside, the orbit, uh, inside the orbit, everything is black just because it contains fluid. The patient's left and right eye are in the left and the middle of your screen. And basically, everyone's going to be saying, what is that? So that's something we call uh, floating algae. That's kind of a, but inside, so if this was performed in an adult in a center of trauma, we would think it's posterior vitreous attachment. But in kids, basically, with no history of trauma, there's something else that has to be uh, considered. And this is sort of the first case that's been described in the literature where we actually were able to see this and led to the diagnosis of uveitis on this patient. Um, she were, oh, continues to be followed up by ophthalmology and rheumatology, um, but this is something that uh, kind of now is sort of my standard practice to 
any patient that comes in with a blurry vision for me to just put the ocular ultrasound in, in her eye just to make sure it doesn't have that. As um, previously, we thought vitreous attachment was something not to consider in kids, but actually uveitis is kind of like now um, could be happening in our pediatric population. And um, as we were going to report in the case report, it's actually something we can see with ocular ultrasound. And sort of one of the other um, new uh, things that we could uh, starting to do. Um, we have a three-year-old who presented to our emergency department with two days of fever, fuzziness, and neck pain. Uh, she reported headache and neck pain for one, one day and a fever on the day of presentation. There were no other associated symptoms. She was initially evaluated in an outside emergency department where a labs were obtained, which noted an elevated white blood count. LP was uh, performed because of the concern for meningitis, which was normal. And a neck x-ray was performed where there were some suspicions for RPA, and that's why she was sent to our institution. So in this case, we sort of have, uh, you know, one of the things we're thinking about is RPA. And uh, we can either make the decision to either repeat this uh, neck x-ray or have it read by our radiologist, or just go on to um, CT. But one of the new things that we're starting to um, kind of train is how to diagnose it with ultrasound, with POCUS. So what you see in, in the, your bright image, and this is a little harder to obtain. So this probe is placed right under the mandible at a 90 degree angle, just as shown in the, le in the, in the left upper side. And what you usually should see is as you see on your right side. So you see the vertebral uh, body, which is a hyperechoic line. Sorry very white line that causes blackening before that because shadowing. And then you see your vessels that they're basically right next to each other. What RPA does, so basically it is born out of the prevertebral uh, lymph node chains. So it actually creates now the space, just as we saw with abscess and cellulitis. And the other thing you can visualize is that this, the space between the artery and vein now increases. So with this, basically, it was an easy thing to do that this patient had um, a RPA and a CT was obtained where we can clearly see the collection uh, in just three images. Now, in this, uh, it had, basically, if this patient was able to get a POCUS exam before the LP, it would avoid that unnecessary LP and basically save our unnecessary interventions and lead her to a quicker diagnosis. This is another rise and feel that, uh, fortunately, with Dr. Malia, who was a resident here and fellow here uh, will be reporting a case series as we gather enough um, patients that we've been able to diagnose with. Uh, so something that will continue to be sort of a rising field and more of interest as we know that x-rays uh, alone are about 80% sensitive to diagnose for RPA. So there needs to be a better way to um, rule out RPA in our patients. So the last thing is, how do we start a program in uh, Connecticut Children's? So the first thing we need is the equipment. And that is easy said than done, as there is a multitude of choices out there for ultrasound machines, all very expensive. Um, but, and the next thing is administrative support, which I was uh, fortunate to get <clears throat> with uh, Dr. Salazar and Dr. Penn, who was my director at the time, which allowed me to basically gave me <clears throat> the free reins to start a program. After that, basically, training needed to be involved. And then, uh, basically, we uh, cr uh, created a curriculum for faculty, fellows, residents, and medical students. Now, once that's done and people are, um, are um, ultrasounding more and more, 
documentation and image archive needs to become more important. And that leads to quality insurance. So in the end, so where are we right now? So in terms of equipment, we were able to uh, secure for two ultrasound machines. Uh, we were able to get two grants to get two portable devices. Uh, we were able to establish a curriculum for all the learners. And with that led to an increased use. Uh, with that, basically, we needed to make for, in order to protect the patient's information, uh, we needed to find a better way to get image archiving. So now we're fortunately that is directly linked to our EMR, which basically makes it a lot easier, not only for us to see, but also it allows us to actually um, share that image with our uh, specialists and they're able to, able to see it from home and help us um, sort of uh, determine the next step in the patient's care. And with that, quality assurance needs to be in place in order to make sure that the ultrasound is appropriately used and is properly um, maintained, which later leads to credentialing. So why, we need, how, why do we need to make it grow? So we need to continue research, obtaining more grants and multi-center studies. We're fortunate we are a part of a multi-center study and the lead side for another multi-center study uh, for the use of POCUS and different things. The next thing is billing. So to increase the revenue, which revenue uh, allows us to expand and grow. And with that expansion, we need to collaborate more with uh, others. Um, I have future meetings with our uh, pediatric hospitalists about the use of this in their, um, in, uh, in their practice. Um, there is um, the other way is to actually create an ultrasound fellowship, which is something in the future we can, and uh, provide new services such as an IB team that with ultrasound guidance that's something that's sort of been interest from our folks in the sedation clinic, GSD, and our patients who present to the emergency department with, uh, who are really hard sticks. And with that, I first want to thank Dr. Bercato for actually uh, letting me um, pursue this while in fellowship since it was very new. There was nothing really about it, but he allowed me to uh, pursue this. Dr. Herbs, who was an uh, ultrasound director at Hartford, who actually has been my mentor, Dr. Melian Pacheco, who are always uh, someone that I always contact regarding to trade ideas, and Dr. Penn and Salazar, as they have given me uh, full support, um, opened their wallets, and uh, allow me to expand the program uh, and give me some protected time. So with that, I take any other questions you guys have. Thank you, Henry. That was uh, stupendous. Really, really good. My wallet is closed, though, so I'm sorry about that. <laughs> if we can uh, turn the lights up a little bit uh, so we can see the, the audience, and we have plenty of uh, time uh, for questions. We'll begin with Dr. Ratson and then Dr. Weiss. Do you have the who has the microphone? Okay. Go, Richard, go ahead. You have the microphone. Richard, go ahead. No, we really can't hear you. So, Richard, you first, and then Susan. Sure. That was a nice presentation, Henry. I have two questions. Yeah. Is this... Uh, replacing the physical exam that we all learned in medical school and making it even less important? Uh, the answer is no. So I think it's a great adjunct to our physical exam. It adds and it helps us uh, be able to um, learn more about the patient right at the bedside, which is sort of why I like it so much. Um, I still consider my physical exam to be very important as the residents and fellows would know, uh, but I consider it a very nice adjunct. So uh, for me to gain and get closer to the patient. And I find that uh, families love it because uh, with a big screen showing your uh, patient, your um, your kid's heart or anything, they just basically feel like they're part of the patient's care 
which I think overall um, improves their experience in our, in our admissions department. And the second question is, yep. is how do you get different specialists to believe your results? Uh, you gave the example where you made the diagnosis of myocarditis, but Dr. Salazar still came in at four o'clock in the morning and, and did an echocardiogram. Uh, yep. Well, so uh, basically, regardless, she was going to get involved, but confirmation is always the key. And uh, nowadays, uh, there's plenty of cases where we actually, the cardiologist has been able to view the images from home and tell us uh, whether the, the overall squeeze was normal, especially in those that we already know that have poor function. They're actually able to see that and basically tell us and use our images to in, uh, basically guide our care. Um, and I think what uh, point of care ultrasound also increases our basically relationship with our specialists because we're, it's always sort of we're sharing our, the patient and sharing the information. So I think um, um, just as the literature has shown, we need to expand more and that means more collaboration with other specialties. So my question, my question was about what was the reception by the radiology departments, not just here, but in general, because they always did all the ultrasounds, but you know, they not as easily available. So how, how did you yank this away? So it's a very great question. I mean, a lot of institutions have a, a problem with that, but I was uh, fortunate enough that uh, our radiology team has been very helpful and cooperative with us. Dr. Brown uh, met with me and basically said, gave me sort of the same support. Dr. Sellerson said, you know, go obviously with appropriate restrictions. One of the key things that I wanted to highlight is that the, most of the ultrasound studies that I uh, showed are actually not available or performed by uh, radiologists. So the ocular ultrasound, the eye ultrasound, is not performed by them. So that's something that's new. The procedural guidance, actually, they, you know, is, is something we can do on our bedside. Uh, the FAST exam is also something that is not available by them. And the last uh, where we uh, ruled out for RPA is another uh, study that actually they don't perform or do. So not only do we know where we ha they have, but we expand from that and sort of create our own niche. Um, but Dr. Brown has been more than helpful, always uh, sort of providing support and sort of telling me like, you know, I, we know our limits and basically everything has to extend from uh, literature. So the, one of the things we're doing with our fellows is seeing for hip effusion if POCUS is as good as radiology, which hasn't been shown yet. Um, so we cannot go and start like, you know, doing POCUS for hip effusions. But if we have literature back up that we are able with appropriate training, then basically the, um, a conversation then rise. And it becomes more important in the settings where there's not ultrasound coverage in 24 hours. Uh, for us, it's overnight, there's no one there. So then, you know, this is focus can be helpful. And other areas that becomes very helpful is when, especially when you go uh, to third world countries, just as Adam Silverman um, sort of goes, he actually borrows our portable ultrasound. And basically nowadays that's basically is this that connects to your phone. Um, so that's gonna to lead to an increased use. So I think this is a conversation that we're just in the beginning um, as people, more and more people, like I think pediatricians will probably start using it, especially urgent cares are probably gonna start using it um, as I already been contacted by some in terms of like where to go with this uh, technology. Yeah, so I'm specifically curious about venous access. You know, uh, intravenous line placement is probably the most feared and painful, considered one of the most painful procedures we do in this hospital. It's a big dissatisfier for parents. So how do we 
uh, spread the use of ultrasound into that environment, not just for physicians, but perhaps for uh, nursing providers to provide, you know, better intravenous access techniques on the floors and other places in the hospital? So great question. So actually, I met with Dr. Salazar earlier uh, last week to discuss this. So uh, right now, essentially, <laughs> uh, the first thing right now is uh, basically I started a program where I actually teach uh, nurses in the emergency department how to use the ultrasound. And we have a few that are quite competent and great and always can look. And they've actually been going to the floors a lot more often. I'm set to train uh, nurses in the sedation unit and the GSD unit as they uh, both sort of like uh, gain access to a portable um, ultrasound. Uh, but the meeting I had with Dr. Salasha was uh, how to sort of like uh, make a team, like assign, uh, like this is sort of like we're in the beginning stages, assign a certain amount of people that are always available so that we can provide that service that the literature shows as a huge patient satisfier. And it's actually Dr. Salazar said to talk to you in terms of uh, getting, because he said his, yeah, his wallet is closed and he told me your wallet is uh, wide open. Uh, so um, over the next couple of months, I sort of uh, gonna um, sort of uh, nail down the details of this and sort of pursue ways to create that service for the whole hospital. These last questions bring up just what I was going to ask for applications in remote areas, uh, let's say a mountainous region in South America or in the Mideast or someplace, in the hands of a suitcase size set uh, uh, funded perhaps by the World Health Organization to enable uh, at a distance and remote use of this technique in a, in a compact package and then transmission to someone with more expertise who can then guide it and read it. Has that been uh, attempted for such regions, such remote regions? Yes. Yeah, so uh, now, as I tell you, um, you know, I'm not going to tell you what, because uh, I don't want to have no, I have no uh, disclosures. So, but one of the things is uh, this little device is sort of kind of changed uh, sort of the way we look at portable, uh, portable ultrasound. It literally can connect to any uh, phone and uh, basically uses, uh, gives you basically a good quality of images and basically can be uploaded to any phone and transferred the images to any other phone as well. Um, so we're at the beginning stages actually, I also met with our um, um, colleagues in the IT department because they want to actually be able to have this for um, hospitals on the outside that they will use this and basically you can upload it so that way our specialists can see what they're seeing. Um, so with the rise, like I said, with the increased technology and the improved uh, image quality and the portability of it, we're going to start seeing it more. And then we essentially going to have to navigate through the nuances. Like one of those is sort of making more accessible, but with everything, we just have to keep a good reign in terms of the quality. We can just let, let the quality sort of go away when we increase it, their, its use. So um, things will go slowly and shortly, but um, I foresee this becoming more and more impactful uh, as the years go by. No, just phone. That's it. Unless, unless you want to get a bigger image, you can get a bigger, like a, like an iPad. Yeah. Hi. Uh, I was hoping you could talk about the issues of overuse and overdiagnosis. We know that's a chronic problem in pediatrics. You know, chest x-rays end up overdiagnosing viral pneumonias and we give antibiotics unnecessarily. And obviously when you're a hammer, everything's a nail. So can you talk about those two issues? Uh, so for overuse, so, you know, for... 
Uh, pneumonia is actually a classic example where um, we're still sort of nailing down um, the dif to differentiate viral pneumonia versus bacterial pneumonia via ultrasound. We're able to see pneumonia, but uh, you, we're not able to crack down in terms of like what, what's different between a viral pneumonia versus bacterial pneumonia. There is some rising uh, literature that hasn't been uh, confirmed yet that uh, says that we might be able to actually diagnose viral pneumonia uh, versus bacterial pneumonia using the ultrasound. Um, so I think more literature has to be and more expertise. Um, as, I, as, as I showed you in my presentation, we're kind of um, still growing in sort of research and use. So we're still trying to like nail down the appropriate uses and with obviously with more research, uh, we'll have more evidence and we'll be able to sort of like delineate its use uh, in a lot more productive way. Thanks, Henry. I commend you for uh, jumping into this uncharted territory. And it's, you probably know this, but it's rapidly moving in the pediatric hospital medicine world as well. So there are definitely going to be uses for us as well. Um, my questions are, one is, first, have you been actually able to bill uh, and, and uh, be successful with that? And secondly, I was thinking about this in terms of certification. And I know that there's a plan for initial certification, but I think one of the key things in quality assurance is going to be ongoing certification because you can imagine with any uh, new skill, there needs to be retraining if necessary as things develop. And then finally, think about the night versus day use. You know, there aren't many uh, interventions we have that one might use it differently at nighttime when there is no available ultrasound versus daytime. So think about how, uh, how do you create a program when you may use it differently at different times of day? Yep. Um, so yes, so in pediatric hospital medicine, actually, uh, uh, there was an article published in uh, Pediatric Hospital uh, Journal in 2019, where it actually says how much you guys are going to sort of use in it uh, for lumbar punctures, IB, and lung ultrasound. Um, I think the use is very dependable on the user and how comfortable they are. Uh, one of the things that uh, always is sort of like a uh, a little bump in the road is sometimes how time consuming it could be to have an ultrasound, uh, to do an ultrasound on the patient, especially like uh, in applications for pneumonia, it could be very time consuming. Um, so I feel that it, it all depends on the user. Um, there are times uh, I would say you can use it anytime. Uh, obviously, if like in our institution where we don't have ultrasound at night, you might use it more often. Uh, just because you don't have that capability and sometimes we're so busy like when we're surging it's hard for me to be like well let me just do the ultrasound rather than have another um a person do it um but i think it becomes into just how like is it going to change your management at the bedside so like for that patient with cardiac ultrasound i was still busy but i was like this doesn't make sense i need to do something and I was, uh, you know, and I did it and then basically it's helpful so i think it's on the user to say how much i need this and it's going to impact the patient's care immediately. And if I need to do that, I think that it doesn't matter what time of the day, I think you should do it at that time. I have one last comment and then we have to, need to wrap up. So obviously in, in your hands, you've done hundreds, thousands of these perhaps. And so I would feel very comfortable with you doing something in a, in a child, but you have, a, uh, you have several uh, faculty members in, in the division, uh, sometimes per diems, et cetera. So, how do you how do you account for that in terms of training when you're not there, and 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 maybe the you know the next the first year 
faculty member may not be as good, but you're not there. And you have that as a established procedure. So how do you deal with that? So the quality assurance uh, has led me to uh, sort of credentialing. So every, I credential everyone in the department for certain applications. So I follow the American College of Emergency Physicians standards. So the usually standards is um, 25 to 50 um, uh, ultrasounds in that particular use, like whether abscess fast and with at least 10% of being positive. And that gets you your initial credentialing. And after that essentially is quality assurance. So what I did with our department essentially start with the very basics. So like abscess and everyone's uh, sort of capable with fast. And then basically like uh, I keep track of every use. So they, everyone at least has 25 um, performance and our fellows sort of follow my um, a very strict curriculum where at the end of their fellowship, they're all sort of credential, actually more than what all the attendings are, just because um, they all require to at least have 50 uh, ultrasound studies in each application as they're um, basically, I make them credential by the end of their fellowship. Um, so actually a third year senior fellow is running around kind of doing pretty much everything. And um, with uh, other providers, just at nurse practitioners and PAs, if there's interest, uh, there is good um, sort of literature on their use with appropriate training as well. And sort of you can follow the same mantra, just make sure that you get appropriate training and good quality assurance. But I feel that um, as long as you have those programs in place, I think you can extend uh, the use of POCUS with sort of all providers. Great, um, excellent. So outstanding grand rounds. Uh, congratulations for your work, very good. So proud of you. I'm so proud of you. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I just got to pack my stuff and that's it. I'll meet you there. Thank you. No, thank you for uh, my, uh, my video issues. <laughs> no, thank you. Yeah, so a couple of my people have probably been in touch with you. Yeah.